Hi everyone, I'm Tina. And I'm Roshni. Welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast, where we explore patterns in human behavior and the reasonings behind them. Hey everyone, welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast. I'm Roshni, and today our guest is Dr. Colin Kammerer, who's going to be talking about habits. Professor Colin Kammerer is the Robert Kirby Professor of Behavioral Finance and Economics at the California Institute of Technology, where he teaches cognitive psychology and economics. Professor Kammerer earned a bachelor's degree in quantitative studies from Johns Hopkins, an MBA in finance, and a PhD in decision theory from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. Before coming to Caltech in 1994, Dr. Kammerer worked at the Kellogg, Warden, and University of Chicago Business Schools. He studies both behavioral and experimental economics. Dr. Kammerer, welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you on the episode today. And I kind of wanted to start out with what made you interested in kind of studying neuroeconomics overall and looking into decision-making behavior? Um, So it started when I was 12 and I went to the racetrack Timonium, Maryland, it's a tiny little racetrack um, that's only open for the month of August. And I was fascinated by the fact that these these beautiful animals you know, walk around the track and the crowd somehow thinks number three is is a heavy favorite to win and number set number nine has no chance. And the crowd's usually pretty accurate, you know, not spot on, but you know, the horses that they say have a 50% chance of winning win about 50% of the time. So I was, I was really interested in that. And then I used to go to the track with my dad and his um, a friend who was a stockbroker. So we talked about the stock market and so on. And I, I, I think I was just really interested in how the, the kind of alchemy of how these groups come to make decisions. So um, when it was time for graduate school, I wanted to get a PhD. I went to the University of Chicago and to study finance originally. Finance turned out at that time in the in the late 70s to be pretty boring. It was before behavioral finance and before people were interested in kind of mistakes investors might make. And also we didn't have really great quality data on like individual people trading and Charles Schwab and stuff like that. And um, so there were a couple of psychologists there who were um, sort of like, you know, a counterpart. The University of Chicago was very focused on rationality. People are, um, you know, optimizing utilities and markets are efficient, which means, you know, all, all the information is embedded in prices. So it's really hard to beat the market. That part's, I believe, is true. Anyway, so in addition to the economics flavor, which was a big deal at the University of Chicago, there were some psychologists who were there to, you know, teach about like how people actually think and, you know, how does, why does marketing work and advertising and different things. And um, that was sort of like the, a precursor to behavioral economics. So they had a lot of psychological ideas about if people aren't perfectly rational, what are they doing? And um, people at University of Chicago like to argue. And it's also the case, mostly that facts win arguments. So the the behavioral scientists, which was Hilly Einhorn and Robert and Hogarth, um, were really good at like picking fights and then actually having data. Like here's an experiment that shows that people make a certain mistake or later in behavioral finance, you know, here's data from traders that show that they're overconfident or something like that. And so um, I think part of it was just personality wise. I was, you know, 
I like to argue too, and I and I like to do things that are different. You know, I have a like high taste for novelty in science, and um, that was in the early '80s when behavioral economics was first getting some lift off, and it was it was really fun. Um, you know, Dick Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize uh, a year or two ago, we were in Sweden for a meeting in the 2000s. And he said, did you ever think we'd be here like talking to the Swedes about behavioral economics? And, and I said, yeah, I mean, of course I did. Like, di- like, didn't you? He's like, no, I wasn't really sure what about anything. It was like, you're my, you're my, you know, guiding star. Oh, captain. Oh, captain. So I was always very confident that something interesting would happen, whether, you know, whether it became a big deal in the profession and people won prizes, like who knows, who knows. Um, and then when I moved to Caltech, in the 1994, uh, they built a brain imaging center, and there were very few people at Caltech that were really interested in human brains because most of the biologists, as you, you will know, um, for most biological processes, humans are kind of too complicated. There's often a simpler animal. Like if you want to study addiction, you should study rodents because rodents get addicted to nicotine and cocaine and um, ethanol, alcohol, and so on. So humans are kind of like not really a good model system for anything except for humans. So um, the imaging center opened and there was a magnet and it was like, can you please scan humans? We have this magnet. Anyone can use it. So, and the the ethos at Caltech um, was, you know, when we enter the provost and stuff and say, can we get some money to kind of try some things out? We're really new to this, you know, seed money, we call it in the grant language. And And they said, was anyone doing this? And at most universities, that means, how weird are you? <laughs> and at Caltech, that means we have a head start, right? So they, they liked the fact that it was it was a very interesting combination of trying to understand economic decision-making using fMRI and other mechanisms. And that was the beginning of neuroeconomics for me. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And it's really interesting because I think this field didn't really exist. It's it's quite a new field. And I'm sure when yes. you were, you know, 12 years old going to the racetracks, <laughs> you weren't thinking of neuroeconomics being this field. But as you said, you know, it's something you saw as a child, and it definitely is something that was always going to merge. And this is something we've brought up in some of our previous episodes, but kind of the development of these technologies like magnetic imaging and and allowing us to, mm-hmm. they're allowing us to really look into the brain in ways that weren't possible before. So it's allowing us to kind of move, as you said, from these animal models that may serve a better purpose in studying certain things like addiction, but kind of moving from that into human studies and being able to look into the brain. And I think this te- this development of technology has really provided a, a lot of momentum in kind of creating this field of neuroeconomics. And I think you've kind of been one of the pioneers in, in a lot of the discoveries that you've made and in merging neuroscience with economics. But kind of going back, why do you think it's important to use methodologies from neuroscience in a field like economics? Um, basically, um, economics is a, is, is a field that's very, that's very impressive in doing a somewhat narrow range of things. So, and most of those things are not understanding human nature, but instead it's like understanding systems. We sometimes use the word institutions, which is like rules, you know, um, how a market is organized, like on eBay, or voting systems, um, or, you know, like a, um, 
you know, a, a board of directors of a company will have certain rules and partly it's sociology and partly it's like power and different things. And so economists are good at studying systems, um, but not so good at understanding flesh and blood human beings. And, um, and also there are, there are a lot of, we call it reduced form, but th there's a lot of concepts in economics which sort of stop short of understanding, you know, biological underpinnings of human behavior. Um, we'll talk about habits, I guess, shortly. But, you know, for example, there's ideas like thinking costs. Like it costs you something to think as if you're spending not money, but you're something like like scarce energy in the brain or. Um, and if you think thinking has a cost, then we should understand like what it is. Sometimes people, it seems like the cost is negative or that it's actually people like to think. People will do like crossword puzzles for free, you know, and other people like proofread crossword puzzles for pay, right? So, you know, why does some kind of thinking pleasurable and other kinds of thinking is really difficult? And um, so, you know, there's a long list of these ideas in economics, like thinking costs, um, uh, like frictions, people talk about information frictions. I mean, friction, I understand from physics, information friction. I want to know exactly what do you mean by that? Is it, is it that you look at a form and the font is too small? Is it that you don't know the, what the jargon is? Is that you're, you, you know, you, you, there's a beautiful study that just came out about um, if you, if you make the form much more user-friendly that people see in order to get, um, to confirm that they have a court date, they show up in court more often. Um, and and that, that's basically just like user design, you know, UI, UX, right? It's, it's not, um, so that, you know, that's a kind of a friction. Um, but to really understand, like un to unpack, you know, what do these frictions means, you really have to think about the psychology of perception, sort of memory, you know, are there certain things that's hard for people to remember? Uh, another part of that study that worked, um, duh, was to send people text reminders. Like your court date is next week, your court date is tomorrow, your court date is today. And in the rational the rational model of economics, you shouldn't have to send reminders because something that important people will automatically remember. But that's not how memory works, <laughs> right? Um, and so um, those, are, those are the kind of general things where economists are sort of, you know, like, like they, they kind of they stopped at the wrong spot by saying, oh, it's an information friction. Well, that's not going to tell us how to solve, solve a problem or design something better. Um, and I think brain imaging is just very, uh, uh, and other methods to understand the brain are very similar. You know, the, almost everything in economics about like sociality, why do people give to charity? Is it like psychically rewarding? Yes, it turns out it is. It turns out that reward areas that are active when you get money are also active when you give money to a charity you like. Like, there, you know, there's an overlap. It's, we call it a warm glow. Um, so the, the word warm glow you know, that you feel good about yourself giving or you, you feel good giving was coined in the literature in like 1990. And now now I can show you a picture that looks like the warm glow, at least, you know, a heat map of brain imaging of warm glow. Um, and and, there, and there's a whole list of things. So it, it's sort of like, do you want to open the black box and really understand human thinking, human nature, sociality, um, the role of social networks? There's been some cool um you know, it turns out like when people are friends, then they have, they have a shared like synchrony and in, in brain activity when they look at images and things like that. So friendship is partly 
you know, shared brain activity, right? I mean, again, and some of these are not surprising. It's just once you actually see it in data and you start to think about practical applications, there's a lot of cool things you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think I also thought behavioral econo uh, economics was such an interesting field for the, these reasons where you can't really explain everything with economics itself. Like there are irrationalities that just don't make sense because humans are, like you said, so difficult to map out. Um, and we mm -hmm. really are just the best model for ourselves because, uh, you know, who else can we predict ourselves from? So you alluded to this a little bit earlier that much of your work has focused on habit-forming behavior. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what your lab has been doing uh, in that area. Okay, yeah, great. So um, habit is a really interesting concept. It's, it's a sort of shared, you know, economists actually talk about habit in a very particular, I think, kind of incomplete, not a ridiculous way, but it, like a, it's like a starter model, you know? And psychology and particular neuroscience have a lot more to say. So um, we think of habit as neural autopilot. Like the, the there's a famous um, idea due to David Marr that we don't really understand a system unless we understand its, its functional purpose. Like what would habits be good for? Why would they have evolved? And we understand it algorithmically, like we can write down an equation or we can program code so that a robot, you know, behaves in a certain way, which is functionally adaptive. And then we also want to understand the neural implementation, like neurons firing, um, blood flow into the brain and stuff like that. So we think of habit as neural autopilot. And what that means is um, you, you go to Chandler Cafe, which is where people eat lunch at Caltech mostly. And uh, is it, you know, there's some new menu items. So you try one. The next time you come back, you try a different one. Uh, at a certain point, we call habit mode. You go in and you say, "What did I have last time? Was it was it reliably rewarding?" Which is a, a number. It's it's the absolute value of the reward prediction It's like a we call it a learning signal associated with the dopaminergic system and stuff like that. So a fair amount is known about this reward prediction error. It's like the driver of like, is this any good? Is this any good? Is this any good? Um, and it's basically old-fashioned reinforcement learning. Um, from animal behavior from the, the 20s and earlier, but it's just, it just sort of like nicely codified in a, a way, borrowing tools actually from computer science also and robotics so that we have you know these equations of exactly what is going on. And so we think of habit as, what did I have last time? Was it reliably rewarding? That, that means, has it been kind of the same every time in terms of quality, let's say? And if the reward reliability is good enough, just do the same thing. And the, the, what the habit is for is to save time when there's probably not much penalty because the thing you're purchasing, you purchased previously and, and you know it's going to be, you know what you're going to get, like going to McDonald's, right? You're going to get the same French fries throughout the world. At least that's their goal. Um, that's what habit's for. And um, uh, But you also need to understand you know, what if, what if you um, order the banh mi and it's terrible? You know, like they change the ingredients and it just doesn't taste like a Vietnamese banh mi sandwich should, or they left something out, or they didn't put the jalapenos in. Um, so you get a negative reward prediction error. And if you do that a couple of times, now all of a sudden the banh mi is not reliably rewarding. 
because you used to have these prediction errors of zero because I knew what I was getting and now it's like negative, negative. So what happens is uh, then the habit mode, habit is broken because habit is great when you have reward reliability, but now you don't have reward reliability. The sandwiches don't taste good they, and they taste different. So then you, you go to something we call goal directed, which is you look at the whole menu. Your goal is to eat something, say, tasty or something healthy today because I had a cheeseburger last night, blah, blah, blah. And um, so the brain is kind of toggling between this habit mode, which is called model free and goal directed or model directed which means you know you have like a kind of spreadsheet of all the different things and you're trying to make some kind of crude often you know a very approximate right you may not even look at the entire menu you look at the first three things and you think oh it's time for a caesar salad um, and, and until you get back in new habit mode so the caesar salad's really good you get the next time you get the next time boom now you have this caesar salad habit um, and the neural evidence for this is pretty good from animal learning but it's mostly um the animal learning data is you know the whole point is to create a like like encapsulated tiny world where the rat comes in they run through a tea maze you know they hear a tone if the tone is hot bang, it means move to the left and you're going to get some food reward if the tone is low bang, move to the right so the, you know the rat's kind of learning like how to run through the tea maze to get food and you can see from neural recordings of individual um neurons, you can see how this habituation takes place. So basically, when the rat, it turns out the rat doesn't actually record any reward prediction error when it eats the food, if it's in habit mode, because it's it's like, eh, I know what I was getting. That's, I'm not learning anything here. Like, the, you know, they have other sensory systems that say, oh, this tastes good. I'm glad I'm eating. But the learning system is like, I didn't learn a thing from this. This is the same old food, you know, we've had for the last 87 trials of the teammates. Um, so one of the things we're trying to do is to see um, how well these principles work in humans making more lifelike choices. Um, and that's pretty challenging because most of the habit data on human habits are not great. When I say not great, I'm using a very modern standard of like, I want something from your Fitbit, you know, or, you know, I want like your heart rate or your, or your, Twitter feed, you know, like I'd like, I don't want to have to ask you, what did you eat yesterday? Unless I'm interested in whether you forgot, right? I don't, I don't want to depend on your conscious recollection to tell me, is this a habit? Does it feel habitual? You know, are you using, I mean, if you ask somebody, did you have to think a lot about what to do? It's like the Heisenberg and Sydney principle. The fact that you're asking them a question about having to think a lot means you're not going to get the best possible answer than if you could say measure something about their biological system where their eyes are looking or something like that so um we've been trying to kind of bridge the gap between um habit neural autopilot as we think of it theoretically very well backed by a lot of neuroscientific evidence and then um large data sets like who goes to the gym on what day and can we could we look at a person's gym attendance and say they're in habit mode and is it really is the same thing as the rats like running down this teammates i mean i kind of hope it is because i i want a simple life you know we're, you know we're often looking for for general principles that apply to lots of to lots of systems you know um not in exactly perfectly the same way like the rats may learn much more slowly than human beings who learn very fast and so forth but 
wouldn't it be great if we have this like basic system we can apply to lots and lots of different things? Um, so we're kind of usually hoping for that outcome, and then sometimes you get a different outcome, like human, you know, human habituation is has some additional complication that um, you don't you wouldn't see from animal learning. Yeah, I'm sorry to say I don't think you've chosen the simplest path. I think all of us who are you know, pursuing neuroscience <laughs> have to be okay with not having a simple like A yeah, to B. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> um, but I think this concept that you brought about about um, expectation and reward has been recurring across a lot of our episodes and through okay. these other conversations. It's really essential in kind of like the experience of music, which is something that we talked about with Dr. Kaplan in a previous episode, and even more recently we talked about how it's essential in feeling happiness and in feeling some of these emotions. And it makes so much sense that it's also involved in habits, you know, that you mm-hmm. are continuously making a certain decision or performing a certain behavior that you know will have a specific outcome. So you can kind of anticipate exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, as we get older, and I think this is definitely something we we talked about in the past as well, that as we get older, we kind of move a little bit more towards that habit forming part of our brain and kind of go less into the exploration because we're a little bit more set in our ways. And we mm-hmm. go back into, this is what I expect out of life. And I've done this before. So I want this again. So as like an adult, I'm sure you see this in your data that people kind of go through more habitual daily routines than maybe a child would. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that exploration versus habit forming circuits. And you know, clearly the reward system is playing a big role here in this expectation and reward that we feel in habits. But what are some other brain regions that you've seen that are involved in informing habits and then also in, in exploring? Um, yeah, that, that, let me mention just since you brought up about age. So the evidence that older people are more habitual is is not strong. Now, that doesn't mean okay. I don't believe it. Yeah. It, um, and again, part of it is um, most of the studies have this habit self-report scale where you ask people are, you know, do you do things routinely? And, you know, the more routine it is, the less likely they are to even to know, you know, maybe they think it's, they, they do it very regularly. Um, a quick aside, I know you're all interested in medicine. One of the most interesting problems in behavioral science and medicine is getting people to take their meds regularly called compliance right and so and i don't mean things like lithium for bipolar you know which or something that has a lot of dramatic side effects but things like statins um there's no side effects you know um it's easy to take you don't have to inject something or go to a hospital right and um and you would think it would become very habitual right like you tell people and sometimes this is medical advice i guess right like you know before you go to bed like I, I take my meds, you know, before I go to bed, you know, they're in the bathroom in a certain place. I try never to move my little pill boxes around, God forbid, like I moved it like a foot, I'd be doomed, you know? Um, and so, you know, you would think that would become very habitual, but what is going on? And it, one theory is that people are kind of forgetting. It's like, did I, I think I, t- I think I took it and I don't want to take it twice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, and it varies by the type of meds and things like that. You know, there's some things where people feel like, oh, I feel much better. I don't need to take my meds and keep up my regular administration. Um, anyway, so so if older people are so habitual, how come they're not taking their meds? You know, <laughs> um, 
and you would think it's a simple problem and uh, and obviously pharma and doctors and their grandkids and everybody wants to sort of somehow figure out how to solve this problem. And it seems to be challenging. I mean, there's, I think there's some interventions that have helped and people are just trying and trying and hopefully someday we'll find a um, probably not a single magic uh, um, bullet, but, you know, a couple of tricks or technological things that will help. It may be, you know, it, it may be that you don't get pills by taking them out of a bottle and putting them in your mouth that, you know, that you have a patch or something like that, that that's going to be the, um, the, the solution. Um, anyway, but I think the age question is extremely interesting and <clears throat> similar to the, I mentioned the MAR levels, but uh, Jan Tinbergen and a lot of other biologists, uh, you know, their view is a good theory should be able to explain a whole bunch of different things. And one is um, ontogeny or like developmental life cycle, like our kids habitual. Like if habit is to save time, scarce mental energy and, you know, like should kids be habitual? Um, probably not. Kids are often ex like hyper explorative. You know, it's like especially like an infant. It's like, oh, let me put this in my mouth and see if it's food. Let me put let me put this penny in my mouth. Let me like let me put this stale piece of popcorn on my mouth. Um, so you know, this the opposite of habit is is exploration, which. Um, is also somebody we know a, a little bit about in the brain, maybe a little less about than habit. Um, and and kind of like purposeful exploration is a really important thing. I think um, personally, if I was writing like a self-help book, part of this is my own taste because I like different things. I would encourage people to explore more because when you're in habit mode, the price you pay for habit mode, even though it saves you a lot of time and energy, is that you aren't trying things that might that you might love if you tried it. Um, and so there's a kind of like hidden hidden cost um, of that kind. Definitely, I think there's so much to say there. First, about the compliance that is actually yeah. the that is actually what got me interested in like healthcare economics in general. Mm -hmm. I took some classes uh, at Penn oh, where we learned about. Um, Exactly. Medication compliance with statins actually was the same example I had. And it is so important. And some of the interventions that I was reading about at that time were like um, monitoring uh, how many, how often a patient basically opened the bottle. Right. Glow cap. And to, yeah. Right. Uh -huh. To see like how if they're taking it daily. And then the other way that, you know, we we know that we can always kind of check is if a patient is adequately using their refills or if they're being refilled like mm -hmm. at the same time and that those mm -hmm. are like indicators of compliance but even in med school we think about it and we we wonder like it really is a lot to ask patients to take medicines and sometimes they're three times a day sometimes they're two times a day and having to schedule all of that it it can be really difficult so that's like something um, I'm really passionate about like getting to find answers and I, I don't know if we will but it's really great to uh, to keep looking into it. So habits can definitely be good and bad. So, you know, get, increasing compliance is definitely a good thing. Um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I think also, like we were talking about, exploring is really, really important. I, w I wanted to talk about, though, um, a, a really important habit that we're all trying to get into right now. Um, during COVID it and in all times, honestly, it's really very important to wash your hands. We're currently entering right. the flu season. Um, and along <laughs> with COVID, you know, this could be a really dangerous couple of months. So how can we encourage habits like hand washing? 
Yeah, thanks, Mom, for the flu season reminder. Um, uh, yeah, actually, hand washing is really, really interesting because it should be something which is highly habitized, right? Like the the formula for habit, or at least the kind of thing we understand from animal learning is you go to a particular time, to a particular place, often at a particular time, and that's what sometimes called a cue or sort of like a context sensitivity. And it's like, oh, this is the place where I wash my hands. And then you're kind of on this autopilot. I mean, that's sort of hopefully, hopefully. Um, I do feel like with hand washing, there's also a kind of hand washing fatigue, you know, particularly a few months ago, I thought, well, I, you know, I actually gave some interviews and talked about this. And I said, what ha are people forming new habits because they're forced to try things like a forced exploration, you know, like cooking more at home, right? Or, you know, exercising at home rather than going to a gym or walking outside. And, um, um, and I actually thought people will wash their hands a lot more and that will have reduced flu deaths. But now I'm not so sure because there's just a, you know, if you're if you're watching a kind of unnaturally high amount, it's hard to just stick with it. You know, so d despite all of the logic of neural autopilot and the fact that you go to a particular place and it's like, oh, this is the place where I wash my hands. I'm going to automatically wash my hands. There's still this little extra gap of like, eh, maybe I'll skip this time. <laughs> you know, um, I I think the 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 usual recipe for something like habit is that you it has to be rewarding and reliably rewarding right so and, and by reward for animals it's like food or you know it could be money but usually we think about reward is basically in the biological sense it's anything an animal including a human will like work to get it could be a, a smile you know the mother's smile to a kid is like boom you know that's a reward it could be um voting you know i feel like a good citizen and i can kind of brag to my friends i voted you know it's very important we all vote blah 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 so you know what the reward actually is it's just something that generates you know dopaminergic um activity in midbrain or something like that um so you know how do we make hand washing rewarding um and also the brain is predictive but it's also adapts very quickly so you know if you have like you know, Alexa, um, praise me for um, washing my hands. If you have some voice that says, thanks for washing your hands and keeping us all safe, that may actually help a little bit for like a few days. Then it will get annoying, <laughs> you know? right? So um, so you want something which is, which is gonna, you know, rewarding and be associated with the activity so people continue to do it, you know, because the, the habit has to be something that you, you like doing. Um, but you, you may need to change up the reward or to, you know, the tough part is like, okay, I, you know, I washed my hands for 20 seconds instead of 10, you know, 10 times a day. And can I just take like the weekend off? Um, and that part's really hard because again, the adaptation is going to be your enemy, right? If, you know, if you have some artificial reward, like a, a smile or, um, you know, something that's delivered at, at the, like in a, um, in a hospital, you know, there's there's clapping or there's a face that shows up. Um, you know, it, it because the brain is also adaptive, it is responsive to reward, but it's also very adaptive. And so, if the reward is the same thing over and over, it can quickly become um, like reward fatiguing. And I don't think anyone's cracked that. But actually, since you mentioned hand washing, let me mention a, um, 
a study we're working on, which is illustrative of, of our approach. So we have some data from, um, thanks to Katie Milkman, who's a collaborator of ours at um, University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School. And um, she has some data from Proventix, which is a, um, a company, what they do is they, they have um, hand sanitation devices in hospital rooms. And the staff have these radio frequency ID, RFID tags. So when you go near the hand washing, it can tell that you're there. Like, oh, uh, Tina, you're near, you know. I mean, it doesn't give you a message, but it records. And then it can tell if you wash your hands. So we have a beautiful time series. We don't have to ask people. Oh, Tina, did you wash your hands today? How many times? We don't have to ask. We just know. Um, so it's to me, this is like the gold standard of data. Right? I'd rather not. I like talking to people, obviously, but I'd rather not rely on them telling me the, the, the absolute truth and remembering for my science. I don't want to gamble my science on that. Um, so we have these beautiful machines and you can see how often people wash their hands and the, the base rate is 50%. And um, what we've been interested in is kind of predictability. So basically, are there, are there certain combinations of like a certain room or a certain time of day? Do you wash your hand? Are you more likely to wash your hands if you haven't washed in the last half hour, right? Like, you know, if I if I just sanitized five minutes ago, I don't have to sanitize. But you know, like sleep, it's like you know, try to I try to do it on a rhythmic schedule, like every half hour. Um, and um, uh, it, it, so it's pretty interesting. So people people are a little bit different. So some people will mostly sanitize on the way out of the room rather than the way in. Um, one thing that's interesting is uh, one of the predictions from the habit theory is that it's called um, insensitivity to reward devaluation, which is kind of a clumsy mouthful. But it basically means you'll continue performing the habit even if it's not rewarding. Right. Um, so the rats, for example, in the maze, if you put them in the maze, and you have a sound, which is a cue, you could go to the left or you could go to the right and you're gonna find food there. And they don't find food, they keep going a few times. You know, it's like, you're, 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 if your goal is to get food, you're wasting your time. And the rat is like, that's not really my goal. My goal is to run in the maze. So it's almost like the valuation system has now assigned value to an action. Even if you consciously know for humans, you know, they consciously know, we ask them that you're not going to get what you expect. Um, and so that predicts that like when people are in hand washing mode, um, so in the data, it looks like when the, the first cu couple of months when people are in the data set, um, they, uh, they often wash less like at the last shift of the day when they're about to go home. It's kind of like, look, I'm leaving the hospital. I don't need clean hands at home. I'm fine. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time. So my, my goal is to not waste my time. I'm, I'm going to not wash my hands at the very end. Like the last room I leave, I don't bother to sanitize. But later in the sample, when they become more habitized, they are more likely to wash their hands at the end of the day, even though it's less rewarding from the point of view of, you know, they're not, they're leaving the hospital. They're not going to infect patients and things like that. So that's a marker that something we see the rats doing, which is to kind of persist in the habit, even when the reward is removed, you can see a little bit in the human data. But humans, humans, you know, adapt much more quickly. So the people, people typically don't, we don't think they persist with these habitual actions 
you know, over and over and over, they're going to quit after three or four or five or 10 or some number of activities. Um, anyway, so it's been, that's been pretty cool. We can, we can predict basically about with about 80 or 85% accuracy when, when they're going to wash their hands by just looking at sort of their track record. Um, and so th that's, that's basically the, the first kind of data sets where we're trying to see habit in the wild, like in a lifelike setting. And again, we don't know, we don't have the control of the lab, so we don't know, like I'd love to have like videotapes where we can see another hallmark of, of like highly trained habit is multitasking. So if, if you're performing the habitual action, because it's not using much scarce cognitive resources, um, you should be able to do other things at the same time. You know, so that you know, you have a nurse, a busy nurse, and you want you want to see her like not even looking at the hand sanitizer, like reaching her hand over, looking at the patient. Hi, how are you today, Ms. Johnson? Yeah, great. Well, I mean, I'm you know pretty good considering, right? And so you'd want to see multitasking, where people can do do other effortful things at the same time as they're washing the hands, because the hand washing doesn't take any real bandwidth. Um, and we haven't, you know, uh, we haven't found the ideal data sets, but um, I should add along those lines, this is the golden age of social science in the sense that we have so much good data. What I tell the students is think of your ideal data set. It's probably out there. And if it's not, something close is out there. And companies, governments may be happy to share it with you. You know, I mean, there's always some headaches about you know, if you're studying rideshare or Apple, you're not getting any data from Apple. Forget it. None, none, right? But Google DeepMind, you know, publishes papers about how they um, hacked the game of Go with an incredible um, uh, auto learning um, neural nets. So um, that's that just bodes well. Neuroeconomics is part of it, but also behavioral science in general. There's um, so many organizations which didn't, in the past think of themselves as like science partners. You know, it's like, here's our data, please come help us understand it and we can run our business better or solve our problem or get more people to show up in their court dates <laughs> in New York. Um, that part is really, really exciting. And I think I think also there's a, this is a little bit self-serving because this is what I do, but I think there's a feeling that interdisciplinarity is really necessary to understand difficult things, you know, like, uh, there's some beautiful early studies about AIDS. You might think AIDS is a medical problem, and it is, but it's also a, a social networks problem. <laughs> you know, like in in Uganda, if you had a terrible AIDS problem, and it was because truckers would drive up and down certain highways and sleep with prostitutes, all of whom would give AIDS to more truckers. So it's like if you're Satan and you want to spread AIDS in Uganda, it's like, ah, this is the social network structure that's going to spread it. And once they got more of the prostitutes to, to insist on condoms, the AIDS rate fell dramatically. And it, it, it had a little bit to do with medicine because of, you know, sexual protection. But a lot of it was really diagnosing. And, and you know, from epidemiology, right, this is the whole thing. It's partly the the nature of the virus and it's R0, but also 
you know, the institutions and practices and who wears masks, who doesn't wear masks. So almost all the challenging, interesting things, med compliance, obesity, opioids, it's, you know, it's one part medicine and then a bunch of parts, politics, psychology, you know, design, and like you need all those people in working in teams to be really understanding these things. Absolutely. I think we learned that um, a lot in medical school now that um, yeah, the big yeah. problems are, you know, a, it's something that a team needs to solve. One thing we hear all the time is prevention is better than cure. And oh, medicine, no you know, can be the cure sometimes, but prevention takes a lot of people. And a lot of that is done outside of the hospital, outside of the healthcare setting. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You know, yeah, you want to. You, you ideal want you almost want nobody coming to the hospital, right? Exactly. And, and, yeah. And by definition, that kind of preventive medicine, you know, what happens in the hospital is sort of like the the final steps. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And also, I don't really blame. Like, I don't think doctors have an arrogance about the complexity of the medicine. It's just, um, uh, it just seems like the the. I don't know if HIV was particularly special or whether these other pandemics um, and, you know, obesity is another one, right? Like obesity is really tough because it's not like opioids. Like you have to eat some food. You don't have to take opioids, right? So we can try to ban them and tax them or regulate them or whatever, but you have to eat food, yeah. <laughs> right? But don't eat too much and eat the right kind. Like, you know, there's a nutritionist's, piece to that but a lot of it's really in the brain and you know there may be genetic components and uh food marketing you know whatever you can you know um think about the economic incentives uh companies have and parenting you know right if if parents are kind of busy and don't have the time to like cook healthy or encourage the kids you know the kids adopt bad habits of the parents so you know, it's all these things. It's like you make a list of the key factors and then you like never, <laughs> the list never ends. Um, but like I said, I, th I think there are a lot of institutions and um, both universities, funding agencies that are, that are completely aware that, that these are multidisciplinary problems and the challenge is really to get the right mixture of people into a room or, you know, or writing a paper together. There, there's so much data, like you said, out there that um, can be found, that can be applied, that can be looked into to um, like find out more about what we could do. Um, and we, we've covered so much here in our, in our uh, conversation today, but unfortunately we're coming to the end of the episode. So I wanted to end by asking the question that we ask all of our, all of our participants. So that question is, uh, what do you think is the most interesting thing about human behavior? I would say that's a really good question. Um, uh, this is not too self-serving because this is not what I really study in my research, but it's something I really admire and think is fascinating. But I, I think one is the extent to which um, emotions and sociality, um, which sort of evolved in smaller scale societies, plays out on a really large scale, including the entire world. You know, so I'll tell one kind of story about this. I think it's sort of illustrative. And um, and actually the famous economist Adam Smith wrote about this in, in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And 
he actually said it's it was something that's so topical it could he could write this exact same sentence today and he said something like um you know the anguish an englishman feels you know when he um you know he's he sees his neighbor's finger break is um you know infinitely stronger than hearing that a flood in china has killed ten thousand people you know and he he used the term social distance you know, which is that sort of how empathic or how close I feel to you. And now with the internet, like the social distance is not physical distance. I mean, it, it, it may be a piece of it, but, you know, like many millions of people think the Korean K-pop band BTS is like their best friends who they're going to marry, even though they don't speak Korean. <laughs> They've never met them. They never will meet them. Like, you know, um, and so I think that's that's really, really interesting, which is how much of our psychology and the things we do is was really built for these very small scale relations. And then we sort of amplify or repurpose it to think about celebrities and people in different countries and um, stuff like that. Oh, I'll, t I'll tell the story about Petra. Uh, I can't remember her last name, but so I, I remember when the, there was a tsunami in Indonesia and um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I remember I was online, so I was kind of watching what was happening. You could see these horrible footage and stuff like that. And um, within about um, 12 hours, the U.S. government had pledged $15 million of aid, which turned out to be ridiculous. It's like nothing, like Walmart could send two or three like ships there and, and easily, you know, do more good than 15 million. I mean, 15 million, right? Um, and I think what it was is people didn't realize how many deaths there were and how much destruction and what happened, even though the rumors were. And then what happened is there was a model who clung to a tree and her boyfriend was swept out of the sea and drowned. Petra. Petra Nemakova, maybe. And now all of a sudden, the U.S. was like, wait a minute. This tsunami almost killed a model. This is serious. And her boyfriend was swept out to sea. And suddenly it was like the, the U.S. ended up giving like a billion dollars, you know. And it was exactly like Adam Smith's story about the Chinese flood, right? If if one of those people, you see this in reporting all the time, if one of the 10,000 people killed in Adam Smith's proverbial hypothetical Chinese flood was like Oprah, like, oh, my God, you know, it's like the, the world's the, the world mourns Oprah. And I love Oprah, by the way. I grew up in Baltimore and she was on the TV there. So Oprah's actually pretty, pretty wonderful. But, you know, there's you, there are these kind of like hyper celebrities who capture so much of this empathy and attention. Like, how could that be? You know, so I think I think that um, question is very interesting. And it's something that can be, you know, we should be able to kind of weaponize it in some way right but it, it could also obviously work in the opposite direction too that people are you know large-scale societies were able to like pour empathy and reward on on people you know times 330 million americans if you decide like you know somebody is so, somehow worthy or heroic but we, you know we also kill a lot of people we don't like um yeah Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting answer. And I love the stories that, you know, you provided to illustrate the answer. I think that's perfect. Great. Um, but thank you, Dr. Kammerer, so much for being on the episode. We really enjoyed this conversation. And 
I know we we had so many other things that I know Tina and I could have asked you so many more questions and kept you here for the rest of your Friday evening. But um, thank you so much for for being on the episode today. That was great. Really my pleasure. For more information on Dr. Colin Kammerer and about the BYB podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at the BYB podcast. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe. Thank you.